0: Welcome back to Bible Time, First Thessalonians 5, 12. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. The next verse is a continuation of this sentence. And to esteem them very highly in love for their works sake and be at peace among yourselves. We'll get into more of that, Lord willing, next time. For now, we're going to focus in on First Thessalonians 5:12. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Father, in Jesus' name, please open these scriptures to our hearts and give us an obedient heart towards this word. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's three parts here of those that you should know. The first is which labor among you, then they that are over you in the Lord, and then they that admonish you. These three, the three that apply to those people, three different aspects that apply to those that you are told to know. <coughs> so let's look at these three different aspects, and then we'll make the application, the application of what it means to know them. So here, the first application of this to know them are the first type of people that you will need to know, they which labor among you. Let's look at that here. Go to Acts chapter 6. These are not speaking of day laborers. Now, another group of people um, may try and take this verse and say, well, that's talking about... That's talking about those that work with their hands and have calluses on their hands and they're strong men and they're greasy men and they're dirty men and they're smelly men and they're covered with sawdust and those are the ones that you need to, um, no. And that's not what this is talking about either. This is talking about those that directly are they which it says over you in the Lord and admonish you. This is talking about in a church, in a local church setting would be the pastors and the teachers. We'll look at that in a little more detail here in a minute. But these are they that labor in prayer, in study of God's word, in the ministry of God's word. Acts chapter 6, here in verse 2. Well, in verse one, in those days, when the number of the disciples were multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the 12 called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, it is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Here's an example in the Bible of those that were laboring among them. These men, these apostles, um, the 12 apostles there minus Judas, so you have the 11 and then you have Matthias who was elected there in chapter 1 um, who was numbered with the 11 but did not attain to that because Christ did not call him. At least that's how I understand it. I know some good men that differ on that. But in any case, the um, here... These apostles are giving themselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word, to prayer and ministry of the word. Go to second, um, Corinthians six one. We need to get our, um, heads on straight here. In general, we have two classes of Christians. You have your white collar Christians and your blue collar Christians. And this is generally true, generally has been true down throughout the ages. And we tend to build our doctrines and our understandings of the Bible around our own personal context. And what we try and do a lot of times without meaning to is try and make the Bible favor our class. So you have the blue collar doctrines and these, they don't recognize a preacher as a real preacher unless he's got calluses on his hands and has black dirt and grime and grease under his fingernails and he's got sawdust in his ears. But then you have the white collar class and they don't recognize a preacher that has calluses or that has black fingernails. They think that you've got to have a piece of paper on the wall of degree and that you've got to go to school and you've got to do all this. And they favor a preacher who sits behind a a desk every day and does everything from behind a desk. And usually you'll have these two groups and they'll kind of split and go separate ways. And usually more of the white-collar type people will go to the church with a white-collar pastor and more of the blue-collar people will go to church with a blue-collar pastor. And that's not necessarily wrong in and of itself. But the problem is whenever we use these things to give to make schisms amongst the body of Christ and to despise others who don't do it like we do it. Now we've got problems. So he's not talking about labor as being carrying a pickaxe. He's not talking about John Henry with two hammers in his hands. He's talking about those that labor in prayer and study of God's word. By the way, I know some blue-collar preachers who labor in prayer and study of God's word and with a chainsaw and a pickaxe and a sledgehammer. And I know some white-collar preachers Preachers who labor in prayer and in study of God's word and they sit behind a desk and they push pencils and they're kind of flabby and they have no calluses. And I've known both to be godly men, and I've known both to be losers. I've met both that are losers. You can meet a man who sits behind a desk and he puts in 70 hours at the church house, and to him, the church is nothing but an incorporation. It's a business to be run, it's a financial institution to make gain off of the people, and his entire life and his financial security are the main agendas on his heart and mind whenever he goes to church to work there at the church house. And I've known blue-collar men who are just as worthless, who think that because, they ha- because they're because they a preacher, they're entitled to some kind of extra respect, and they won't take a dime from the church house, but they strut around like a big cock rooster in the henyard and try and lord it over everybody else, and they're full of pride because they work hard, and they think that working hard exempts exempts them from all their pastoral duties, and they don't actually do the work of the ministry. They don't stay in prayer. They don't stay in the Word and they bring a bunch of trash to the pulpit on sundays and this is this is common throughout the land What they bring is a bunch of leftovers. They pick up a bunch of freezer meals. They get themselves together, Some somebody else's outlines, somebody else's books, somebody else's sermons. They get their little devotionals, and they find some stuff to read, and they don't pray, and they don't seek God's face. They just get up, and they ramble on and on, and they drone on and on, giving all these other pre-prepared meals with no anointing and no power of God. And it's an offense to Almighty God when such is the case. And by the way, there's white-collar people who do that too as far as the using other men's messages and not using their own. And I'm not saying a man can't get help from another man's message. We're all preaching the same Bible. But what I am saying is if you are not going to God to get a message from the Lord to bring to your flock, you ain't worth your salt. You've got to get a message from God or you don't deserve to stand in the pulpit. You shouldn't be going to get messages from men. Now, God may use men to give you some ammunition and that can be a blessing, but you better get the message from God and you better get the fire of God on the message when you deliver it or it's nothing but uh, a bunch of dead limp Letter killing death. Second Corinthians 6 here and verse 1, We then as workers together with him, beseech ye, you also that ye receive not the grace of God in vain. For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation, giving no offense in anything that the ministry be not blamed, but in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God. Here are the ministers of God, these that were beseeched and entreated and in fact admonished by Paul in 1 Thessalonians five twelve to know, he says, as the ministers of God, in much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, that's when you run out of stuff, run out of supplies, there's a common idea out there that... God's, we use this phrase, God's work done God's way will never lack God's resources. And then we use that to try and explain away doing the work on nothing. And we think that if we don't have money in the bank, then that means that we don't have to serve God. And that if God is in it, there will be money. And that is not always true. Sometimes there's no money and you go and God provides everything and anything but money. And somehow you make it through on the other side and you have, and you find out that that you've done God's work and you've done it God's way and you didn't lack God's resources, but you might go through some necessities. You might live, you might be shouting up and down for joy when you get a dozen eggs. You might go through some real times of limiting, real times of nothing that God might prove you and try you to see whether your heart is truly in it, whether you're really following God or whether you've gotta have a 401k and money in the bank before you take a step forward. God will let you go through trying and testings of your faith. Necessities means they ran out of stuff. He's saying we're the ministers of God. We're in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God in much patience. That means waiting around in afflictions. That means things aren't going right. There's trouble. He says in necessities, that means you're out of resources and you have to serve God without anything, even though there's not funds. There's not resources. You have to keep going and trying to serve God at great in times of necessities. He says, In distresses, that's whenever these things come that cause fear and anguish and you're having a hard time focusing. He says we're still approving ourselves as the ministers of God. In stripes, he says, that's when a whip is going across your back. In imprisonments, that's when you're a jailbird and you're locked up for the faith of Jesus Christ. In tumults, that's when a crowd is gathered against you and they're yelling and they're throwing vegetables and then the vegetables turn to beer bottles and the beer bottles turn to clubs and the clubs turn to... Um, all kinds of chains and sticks and they're um, taking you to beat you and to try and stone you and kill you. Um, these are tumults in labors. These labors are labors in Paul's case also with his hands that sometimes they ran out of food and had to quit preaching and make some tents for a little while to try and pay their bills so that they could go preach again. And sometimes that happened, and so sometimes even in the physical labors, but also in the labors of the ministry, which are the greater application that is given throughout the Word of God to the minister of God. Labor as far as working with your hands is something. That God told Adam to do. God told Adam to tend the garden when he made the garden. He gave guard, the Adam the garden to keep and told him to tend it. Work is not part of the curse. But work amongst thorns and with the sweat of your brow, and with the whole world fighting against you to keep you from accomplishing your goals, that's part of the curse. And so that part of it does enter in, but that part applies to everybody. The part of the labors that more particularly applies to ministers is the labor of the word and the labor of doctrine. The labor of prayer. He says here next in watchings and in fastings, So that shows you again that the labors here are more spiritual than they are physical, though the physical may still apply. So he says, in watchings, that's long periods of prayer, not knowing what to say to God and just just trying to read your Bible and pray, not even knowing how to pray. In fastings, setting aside the plate, getting before God, getting on your face before God and skipping your food so that you can focus entirely on God. This is those things that approve the ministers of God. He says, by pureness, by pureness, that pureness is a big word, that means without offense, that means Without fault. That means without sin. He says by knowledge, that knowledge there shows that there's a studying that's been going on. And there's a labor, not just in the word and in prayer, but a labor to know that you're preaching the truth, a labor that you're, that you actually work at getting the message from God and work at putting the message together in a way that is able to be received A message, preparing a message is kind of like preparing a meal. And many of you know what it's like to have somebody that's disgusted with you um, or just doesn't care anymore or is depressed making you a meal. And if you're ever in that condition, you know what it's like. Whether you've gone through a restaurant and you got that cook that's at the end of his rope and he's had it and he's ready to quit. And when the food comes out, it looks like it'd, it'd be about fit to feed to a dog. Or whenever somebody at the house is depressed and they're trying to make food for everybody, but their mind's not in it and their heart's not in it. And the eggs are green and crispy and the and the biscuits are doughy and the gravy's clumpy and everything's just not right. And that's what a lot of churches have getting served up in their pulpits every Sunday. A bunch of clumpy gravy, a bunch of doughy biscuits, and a bunch of crispy green eggs. And they're not getting the, the word by knowledge. It's not studied out. It's not thought out. It's not carefully examined. It's just slapped together and thrown in front of them like, here, eat it. And so here he says, in their ministry, they're approving themselves as ministers by knowledge. It is not holy to be ignorant. It's not holy to be erudite, to be well-versed and well-studied, um, eclectic in your reading. It's not, it's not holy to know a lot, but it's not holy to know nothing. Both of these are pits that you fall in. A lot of times the white-collar crowd of Christians will exalt the erudite, the man that brings an illustration from Aesop's. Fables and um, from the Iliad and from Homer, and then he brings an illustration from some other obscure historian, and he talks about theologians from 500 years ago, and he fills his messages with all this extra fluff. And they tend to exalt that stuff. And a lot of times, the blue collar crowd just wants some spit and yell. They just want noise and spit. And if the preacher spits real good and yells real loud, they think they've been to church, whether he really said anything or not. And this is a, this is a grievous charged to lay at the feet of some preachers and some churches because a lot of churches the preacher gets up and spits and yells the same thing he spit and yelled last week and the week, and the week before and the week before and the week before and the week before he just uses a different jump off text at the start of his message every week and so he'll jump in and he'll say there go the ships or he'll say in stripes and imprisonments or he'll say some other verse Adam knew his wife and then he's off on this soap box preaching and spitting and yelling, and he never has knowledge in, infused in the message. It's never got any knowledge in it. There's a balance to this thing. There's a balance here. It's not, It doesn't make you holy to be ignorant, and it doesn't make you holy to be studied. But if you're going to approve yourself as a minister of God, there needs to be some knowledge. There needs to be some careful study involved in it. So he says, by pureness, by knowledge. And boy, I jump on that one because it's not as convicting as that pureness. That pureness one, boy, that can hit me right between the eyes. How pure am I? How pure are my are my heart's motives? How pure are my thoughts? How pure am I whenever I'm in my study and nobody else can see what I'm thinking, what I'm doing? How pure am I? How pure am I behind the scenes? How pure am I in my in my thoughts about myself? How pure am I in my thoughts about God? He says, in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God. He says, by long-suffering, by long-suffering. So the minister of God, bearing long, suffering long with people. If you are going to minister, you are going to suffer. Yea, and all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. He says, we're proving ourselves as ministers of God by going through the persecution, by standing in the face of it, by enduring, by holding fast the faithful word in the face of great opposition he says this is approving us as ministers these are the labors of a minister did you know the labor of a minister might be sitting in a jail cell boy that's not much labor not going to get good calluses sitting in a jail cell not going to make a good paycheck sitting in a jail cell but a godly minister that gets thrown in jail is laboring in the jailhouse. if he's a godly minister he's laboring through his persecution and long suffering It says by kindness is kindness labor. Oh boy, it sure can be. Sometimes you just want to poke somebody right in the eyeball or you just want to slap them in the face. You just had it. You've you're done with stupidity. You're done with, um, the sarcasm. You're done. I had a man the other day, um, brother Michael Kime was preaching and this man, he's, he gets up and he gets closer and closer to Michael the whole time. He's saying, you roll on, roll on, roll on. I think it's time for you to shut up. I think it's time for you to shut up up for 45 minutes he kept it up I tried my best I prayed I thought about going to talk to him the Lord just had me sit there and amen brother Michael and try and back him up through it we got done with that um preaching and brother Michael confessed that man was telling him it's time to shut up and it was time as time had run out the man had been saying it for 45 minutes brother Michael said in my flesh I just wanted to keep on preaching But God said, no, you don't. You shut her down. So Brother Michael obeyed the Lord. Praise the Lord. Brother Michael went up to that man and smiled and shook his hand and tried to be nice to him. That man, I stopped him on his way out, and I shook his hand, and I tried to talk to him, and I just said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And that man who has denied Christ, and I don't give you all his backstory, but basically, he told me he doesn't need the blood of Christ, because he's been baptized in the water of a creek, and he doesn't need that blood, and he said he chooses to go to eternity trusting the water and not the blood. That's what he's confessed. And here he is resisting the gospel. I tried to shake his hand and be nice to him. Um, he hasn't got to the point where i believe it was right to withdraw or to do anything else like that yet we're still just trying to preach to him and love him but kindness can be a labor when somebody's telling you shut up when somebody's telling you roll on when somebody's making faces at you and somebody is is taking your kindness of bringing them the gospel and throwing it in your face it's a labor to be kind it can be a labor just to be nice to people but he says in all things approving ourselves as the the ministers of God in much patience and afflictions and necessities. He goes down here by kindness. And then he says by the Holy Ghost. A ministry that is not under the anointing power of the Holy Spirit of God is not a ministry. Anybody on the face of the earth can get up with a Bible and read it and tell people what they think it says. Lost people do it in churches all over this nation every Sunday, every Wednesday. They teach seminars, they preach in theological seminaries, and they're not even born again by the power of God, much less do they even understand it. Many of them resist the truth and yet they stand up to supposedly preach the gospel. The Bible says here, by the Holy Ghost. If you don't have the Holy Ghost, then your ministry is not a ministry, it is a burden. You need to get filled with the Holy Ghost. You need to get born again, and dwelt with the Holy Ghost. That's what being born again is, is when the Holy Ghost moves in, and then you need to get filled with the Holy Ghost, where your mind, your will, and your emotions are overwhelmed with the power and the thoughts of God, so that you can think and do God's thoughts. So that the anointing of God can cover your body, and you can do what God tells you. Tells you to do with obedience and with love unfeigned. Our next thing here by love unfeigned is they approve themselves as the ministers of God with love unfeigned. It wasn't love for ulterior motives. It wasn't love to try and see what kind of offerings you can get. I've met some pretty slippery preachers who will sidle up to you and shake your hand and smile and their teeth will twinkle in the sunlight and their eyes will sparkle and they'll put their arm around you and they'll love on you and they'll tell you how sweet they, that you you are, and they'll never say one word about sin, and they'll tell everybody how much they love them week after week after week, and as long as the offering's good, he'll keep that slippery, smooth talking coming. Paul says we approved ourselves by love unfeigned. Look at verse seven, by the word of truth. If your ministry isn't based in the word of truth, then you ain't got a ministry. It's I'm sick to death of all the ministries popping up all over this nation. Everybody's got a ministry. What's your ministry? I rescue dogs. What's your ministry? Oh, I go around and, and I pick up clothes and sell them in a thrift store. Why is that a ministry? You're making a living off of it. All these people making livings off of ministries that aren't ministries. There's no ministry of the word. The word of God is not there and they're not approved in the sight of God. They might have a nice little business model, an altruistic, humanistic outreach, but it ain't a ministry unless it's by the word of God, by the word of truth. And then he says, by the power of God. And that goes back, the Holy Ghost's got to be in it, and the Holy Ghost's got to be coming out of it. When the power of God comes on, that's when the Holy Ghost has moved through somebody and is now operating outside of that person on the people around around that minister. And that's the power of God coming, as many as received him, to them gave he power. Power to become the sons of God the power of God is what changes lives and the power of God's got to be on a ministry and I'm not talking about quitting dope and quitting smoking I wish some people would keep right on smoking and get saved a whole lot of people quitting smoking and then they go and they go bust hell wide open with um, because they quit smoking and they think they're saved now they quit drugs they quit drinking they go to aAA they do all this stuff and then they think they're going to heaven but they've never been born again by the power of God God, they need to get saved. It would be better to get saved and smoke and drink and dope and do the works than it would be to quit it all and go to hell. Now, if you get saved, God's going to quit a lot of that stuff for you. He's going to break you loose of that stuff. But a lot of these things, these ministries, we go and we make people repeat a prayer and then we take them through this whole um, series of programs and accountability partners to try and prop them up and prove that they're really saved when they're not. And we help them break their addictions and get back on the right track. And get a good job, but they're not saved. They're not born again. They've never repented of their sins and believed the gospel. Now, and that's called the social gospel, by the way, and it's a scourge to our nation. He says, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. This is the minister. This is the labors of the ministry. Go to Second Corinthians chapter, 10, and look at verse 8. He says, For though I should boast somewhat more of our authority, which the Lord hath given us for edification and not for your destruction, I should not be ashamed. He's telling them, If I wanted to, I could boast of my authority. Now this concept that these which labor among you have authority is a lost concept in our day. We don't believe preachers have any authority. We don't believe ministers have any authority, because Jesus said, He that is greatest among you let him be as your servant. So then we just push them aside and wipe our feet on him like we do Christ. And by the way, that's how we receive Christ. You wipe your feet on God's servant, you're wiping your feet on Christ. Now here in chapter 11, these with authority, go to verse 23, he says, are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool, I am more, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure. And Paul's labors, by the way, were not tent making primarily. Tent making was a side job he picked up, and the only place that we have a direct reference to the tent making is, I believe, Corinth, if I remember right. There's one city where Paul wrought because he was of the same occupation, and took tells you that he had skill in tent making, but that was not his labor. Otherwise, he could have stayed in Tarshish and had a booming tent ministry. Instead, he went and look up the rest of this here. He says here, and labor's more abundant, and stripes above measure. How many tent makers have you seen get whipped for tent making? In prisons more frequent, how many tent makers are in prison for tent making? In deaths oft, how many tent makers have died and resurrected over tent making? This tent making thing has been blown out of proportion. It's a truth in the Bible, but let's get it balanced and in its place. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day have I been in the deep in journeyings often in perils of water and perils of robbers and perils of mine own countrymen in perils by the heathen in perils in the city in perils in the wilderness in perils in the sea and perils among false brethren in weariness and painfulness in watchings often in hunger and thirst in fastings often in cold and nakedness verse 28 beside those things that are without that which cometh upon me daily the care of all the churches who is weak and I am not weak who is offended and and I burn not. If I must needs glory, I will glory of those things which concern mine infirmities." So here's the Apostle Paul, and here he is laboring, here he is preaching, here he is sometimes making tents, here he is sometimes sitting in a jail cell, here he is sometimes being stoned to death and raised from the dead, but always approving himself in kindness, always approving himself in long-suffering, always approving himself by the Holy Ghost, by the power of God, by the word of truth, preaching the word unashamedly, carrying on with the work of the gospel, even though the whole world is against him. And this is One of those which labor. This is the hallmark. This is the measure. This is the goal. This is what you should look for in a preacher, in a gospel worker. This is the measure. The measure is not how much money he can fundraise or how nice his car is, how big his house is, how many people listen to him, how many people follow him on Facebook. We just read the measure of the labors. By the way, a man that's laboring hard is often well known yet not known. Didn't Paul say that in his list? Not known, yet well known. That means a few people know him really well because he's poured his life into him because they were willing, but most people don't know him at all. And his name doesn't mean anything to the big shots in the world, but there's a few faithful saints that love him love him unto death and would give their right arm for him. Now it says to, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11, we have these five ministerial, gifts given. By Jesus Christ as gifts to the church, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists some pastors and teachers now we've looked at this a little bit whenever we touched on there 's apostles at the in the start of first Thessalonians and we looked at that you can go back and look it up to get a better study i 'm not going to study that out right now the Bible's clear in revelation that there are twelve apostles of the Lamb, not thirteen, not fourteen, not seventeen, not one hundred and forty four thousand there 's twelve apostles of the Lamb there are only 12. There will not be more than 12. There can only be 12, and there were only 12 that were handpicked by God. This is why continually I'll go back to it, and again, I don't want to fuss with anybody over this. I'm just trying my best to preach the Bible as best I can, but that Matthias didn't make the cut is evident by the fact that God picked Saul of Tarshish, and God made him the 12th. He took Judas' bishopric, And we can move on from there. If I'm wrong about that, God will straighten me out. But in any case, there's 12. Whether I'm right about which one's the 12th or not, that doesn't matter. There's 12. Whatever anybody's opinion is, there's 12. That means there's not room for you to be an apostle of the Lamb out there. And anybody that tries to pretend to be an apostle of the Lamb is a phony and a fraud. There's 12. Tell them the seats are filled up. They say, well, they died. What about succession? Jesus said, he that believeth in me shall never die they're not dead and by the way I've got the 12 apostles of the lamb right now in my hand in the 66 books of the authorized version bible perfectly preserved for me today and here they are ministering to me and ministering to you and all the authority that I can derive um, to preach the word of God is vested first of all in the apostles by Christ and passed down to us to operate in without the apostles you wouldn't have the word of God the word of God are your apostles? Next time a Mormon asks you, where are your apostles? Hold your Bible up in their face and say right here right here and if you preach another gospel than this which has been given unto us the bible says even if you're an angel let him be accursed here's my apostles now the apostolic ministry in this in the that paul carried out of going into places where christ is not preached and establishing churches from nothing is an apostolic vocation it's a type of work that is an apostolic work and so vocationally missionaries who are true missionaries missionaries and following God are working under the 12 apostles of the Lamb in an apostolic type of work, and that is what apostolic ministry is. And in that sense, that's true apostolic ministry today. All this slap you on the forehead stuff is um, apostles of hell, apostles of Satan, with lying wonders and much deceivableness. So these um, these that are working on starting a church then are over you and the Lord. Let's say you're out in the middle of the desert, and you're a Bedouin, and here comes a preacher, and he starts sharing the gospel with you and preaching. Next thing you know, there's a few people saved, and this man is organizing a church. He is acting apostolically under the authority of the 12 in the Bible, if he's worth his salt, if he's real at all. He's completely obeying this book, the Bible. And therefore, in that sense, you're under him in the Lord, and he's instructing you in the Lord. For those of you that are going to an established church, you have pastors here. Now, some pastors are evangelists. Some pastors are prophets, and there you go, blowing gaskets. Prophet means a proclaimer of the word of God. He proclaims, he preaches the word of God, and that is what it means. Other applications of it are just that, other applications, a true prophet in the New New Testament takes the finished completed revelation of God's will for mankind in the 66 books of the Bible and proclaims the finished word of God to people. That is the ministry of the prophet in the New Testament. Now, um, there are other ways where you can see some um, some of the the power of God's not over people. The power of God is still here. And you think about old um, an old preacher down in Mississippi, and he wrote a letter to Elvis Presley. Elvis Presley he said, "You're destroying our young people. You're damning thousands of people to hell with your wickedness and your sin. And God is not God is not happy. You've got just a short space to repent, turn or burn. You're on your way to hell and God's going to see to it, you go there quick if you don't repent. Elvis Presley got the letter, Elvis Presley did not repent, Elvis Presley died within the month, if I remember the story right, and that story was repeated for more than one preacher, and that is a prophetic type of work there. Whether you like that or not, that's a prophetic type of work that was done there, but it was done on the authority of God's Word, and God did it, and that's been evidenced many times. Now, Um, Here we go. we got to get off that and keep moving. So you have a pastor that's more of a teacher. You have a pastor that's more of an evangelist. You have a pastor that is more of a prophet, a preacher of the word of God. You have some preachers that um, are just evangelists, just teachers, just prophets. They just get up and preach the word of God with authority and say, thus saith the Lord and make the application and drive it home. All of these gifts are still in effect, because Christ said they would for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I, d- I love you if you disagree with me, but if you say these gifts have stopped functioning, that comes from a, I, I understand where you're going. The gifts you're saying stopped functioning never existed though. These fake apostles and all these never were apostles. They never will be apostles. We've got to get back to the Bible. The Bible says these gifts are till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man and the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I ain't there yet. So if you are, I'm not, and it says we all So until I get there, even if you're there, we've still got the five gifts, but how they're used has to be biblical. It has to be in obedience to the word of God and subjection to the word of God. And we don't have the right to reinterpret this because other people misinterpreted other passages and came up with false prophets and false apostles that don't even count. They never existed to begin with. So there's no reason for them to ever have ceased. And the Bible doesn't say that they did. So moving on from there. I love you all in the Lord. I'm just trying to preach the Bible here. This is called Bible time. I'd be an unfaithful servant of the Lord if I didn't stick to the Bible. And if I'm wrong, then I hope God will correct me before I go and make a worse fool out of myself than I already have. But what I've given you today is Bible. (coughs) Now, there are Here in the Bible, let's look at this role of pastors. These pastors will take an authoritarian role in a church more than any other gift. The apostle, um, Paul said, is the off-scouring of all men, and that's true for the missionary that's operating under the 12 apostles and trying to pattern himself after their work. The missionary is also the off-scouring. A lot of times he's the least esteemed in the church house, um, So, but the pastor a lot of times will take the most authoritative role of all the five ministerial gifts in the Bible. So we're going to zoom in on them here today. Uh, We must mention deacons on the way. Deacons are servants of the church. We saw them instituted in Acts chapter 6 that we just read, and we found that they were given a jurisdiction to serve in. But they were not given any authority over the church. A deacon's board that makes decisions in the church house is unbiblical. Now, if you all love God and submit to yourselves, submit yourselves to God and love the Lord, then you might get away with it. God has given us a ton. Before we get any further, I want to say this God has given us a ton of latitude in the governance of the local church. God did not spell it out. You should have one pastor, three deacons for every hundred people. God didn't do that anywhere. He left it very open-ended. All God did was give parameters to the ministries. And then, as we'll see, he said, ordain elders in every city. We'll get to that thing, and and we'll talk about some of that Lord willing. God gave parameters and he gives the church huge amounts of latitude in how it structures itself. Just like in the family, which is a completely separate and independent um, organization, if you will, from the church. God instituted the family before he ever brought about human government. Family is the building block of society. And the father's the head of the home. The mother is under the father, but over the children. God set up the parameters. If you don't do it God's way you will suffer for it. However you divert from God's plan, you will suffer for it. You won't be what you could be for God. So deacons are servants in the church. They are given a dedicated, delegated jurisdiction over which they have limited authority as a servant, as a helper to the church. There is nowhere in this Bible that you can find a deacon having any authority in the church general other than as a layman, as a normal man. That's God's way. All these deacons ruling it over pastors are out of line. That is wrong. It is not God's way. A deacon in such a case is in rebellion to God's plan. Now, a lot of deacons don't even know any better. A lot of deacons, they got elected to the deacon board. The deacons always ruled over the pastor. The pastor's always submitted to it, and they just don't even know any better, and they just keep on going that way because they think that that's the way it goes. That comes from a representative form of government mindset. That's called American constitutional government in the church house, and it's not supposed to be that way. The church house is not America. It's not a government. It's a church, and Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the chief pastor, the chief shepherd. There is no other at the head. And I want to say this straight, gun barrel straight right now, as straight as I can possibly say it. Any pastor that sets himself up as the head of the church is doomed for a fall. Because Christ is the head of the church and he will share his glory with no other. It is unbiblical and therefore wrong to call the pastor the head of the church. I understand where a lot of people go when they do that, and I can give you some grace there. I understand where you're coming from. I I understand what you're trying to do, and I agree with the idea that you're trying to um, stay under authority and promote the authority structure that God gave, but it's wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong. In no way is the pastor ever the head of the church ever in any way. No pastor, no deacon, no layman, and definitely not your grandma are ever supposed to be the head of the church. Christ Jesus is the head of the church, period. End of story, full stop. Change your verbiage. Change your vernacular. Change the way you talk about it if you're using that because it is wrong, and it steals glory from Christ, and he will not share his glory with another. By the way, over-exalting your pastor sets him up for failure. You raise your pastor up. You over exalt your pastor and you stand a high risk of God removing your pastor because his glory he will share with no man. Yes, you must follow him. We're about to get into that. We're looking at this authority. He says to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And we're going to look at that pastoral authority here because these are they that are over you in the Lord. And it's a real thing. Pastors have authority in the flock. And if you get out from under that authority and buck against that authority and rebel against that authority, you'll bring upon yourself wrath and condemnation. You better understand pastoral authority. It is a real thing. But if you over-exalt your pastor, you are in for a train wreck and a fall, and your pastor is too. Somebody's going down in the church that worships a pastor. I've seen it before, and I'll probably see it again, and it strikes fear in my heart every time I hear about it, or if I hear a preacher online or something talking about being the head of the church, oh, God have mercy. You don't usurp God's position. Nobody ever. You get out of that seat and give it back to God and don't give it to anybody else. The church is not a family. The church is not a government and the church is not a family. Do you hear me today? There are some things that might relate, but they are distinct and separate and function entirely different. The only way you can compare Christ to the church is a Family is when Christ is the head of the church. And then who's the wife? Let me ask you this. I know we're stuck here, but we gotta be. This is Bible. Who is the wife of the bridegroom Christ? The church. The pastor? No, the church. The church gathered together in one mind and one heart. Within the church, there are many members. Some of those members are pastors some of those members are teachers some of those members are evangelists etc but they are all members of the church and the church is the bride get this listen you've got to get this some people say and i love them and i and even people that i i disagree with you and that's okay i love you but listen i'm teaching bible i'm preaching bible here today some people say well the church is like a family and the pastors like the daddy well who's the mommy the deacons It breaks down. That whole thing breaks down. That is not a biblical understanding. That is a false understanding of God's analogy of the family and the church. The biblical use all through Ephesians of the church being the family is Christ as the head, the bridegroom, the bride being the totality of all believing saints, being the bride in perfect equality the pastor is not higher than the lowest widow in the church but the pastor has a delegated office from Christ and with that office comes authority and he must execute his office or he's not being a faithful pastor and that means he has to take authority in the church and if you fight that authority then you're fighting God but this is where that would be that's One brother to another brother. That's biblical. Christ is the head, the church, and if you would use the sense universal, is all the totality of believing saints is the bride, the local assemblies of the body of Christ, the local churches that that are all individual units are operating as brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus said, call no man your father on earth. Don't let popish Romanism get into the church house. It's gotten into to church houses. It gets in the church house. And as soon as you make the pastor, the head of the church, you have Nicolaitanism coming into the church. The preacher is not better than the two year old toddler sitting in a dirty diaper. He's just a man, but the two-year-old does not have authority or jurisdiction, has not been ordained by God to lead the church, and the pastor has. So you better listen to the pastor, and you better not obey that two-year-old. This should be basic, and I, and I hope it is. I know this is such a stumbling block for so many people, but listen, if you get this wrong, you are toast. You're done. If you think the pastor's the head of the church, your, your usefulness for God will be diminished significantly. You'll be crippled your whole life. If you're a pastor, you'll be crippled, and your church will be crippled. If you're a layman, you'll be crippled because you will not have the guts and the backbone to be your own self before God to be an individual Christian to get your own leading to read the Bible yourself teach the Bible to your family even if you don't see things quite eye to eye you need to be man enough to go gently to the pastor ask him his reasons and at least hear him out on it by the way the pastor doesn't have to hear you and that's where we're going here with this to know we'll get that in just a second so pastors, here we got to jump. This we got to keep moving. Help me, Lord. Go to First Peter chapter five. There are um, three primary words um, used for pastor in the Bible besides pastor. We're going to look at the first one here, and sec- as it, it's First Peter five, and here he uses the word. Well, it's not the first one that I wanted, but um, so here we'll look at. Let me get there. First Peter five, and verse. I want to look at this first. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. So here, the chief shepherd indicates that the pastor is an under-shepherd, and the Bible talks about pastors as shepherds. In fact, pastor means shepherd. But here, he says in chapter 5, verse 1, the elders which are among you, I exhort whom also an elder. Now, I know that that verse, look at chapter 5, likewise ye younger, or verse 5, submit yourselves unto the elder, yea, all of you be subject one to another, another place that we'll look at here in just a moment. And Titus says, um, to ordain elders in every city. Elders are can be two things, depending on the context. An elder can be an older man in the church, or an elder can be an ordained pastor. And the word might be used either way. You have to read the context to understand it. The elders which are among you, I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Look at the this pastoral exhortation to the elders. Feed the flock of God, which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Neither is being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock, hence the brother to brother, brother to sister relationship of the pastor. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Likewise ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. So this to the general body, likewise, as the as the elders that are ordained must submit to the chief shepherd, so must the younger Christians submit themselves to the elder Christians. And then he goes further, yea, all of you be subject one to another. That means elders be subject to the youngers. That means husbands be subject to wives. Wait a second. Wait a second. That can't be true. In its proper place, it is true. The wife is subject to the husband in the home, but the husband must submit himself to the needs of the wife in order to properly lead her. Lord, help us today. (coughs) He says, and be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud and giveth, gra- but, and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. So here's this call to the shepherd, the pastor, who's the shepherd, who's the overseer of the church, also called an elder. Now go in your text to 1st Timothy 3. 1st Timothy chapter 3. We're not going to read all these qualifications for a bishop. This is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth the good work. And he goes on here and, um, let's see here, verse 6, Not an novice lest being lifted up with pride he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. If you read all of these qualifications of the bishop and then turn over to Titus, Titus chapter 1 and just a few more pages you find that they parallel here Um, The qualifications of the bishop in Titus, blameless, steward of God. So there's steward of God, which is a servant of the Lord. And this shows you the difference here between a bishop and an elder, not self-willed, not soon angry, holding fast the faithful words that he has been taught, um, that he may be able by sound doctrine, both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers whose mouths must be stopped, etc. So here, the bishop, the elder, and the shepherd, the overseer are all different names given Given to the pastoral role, the pastoral role, taking oversight over the church, not for filthy lucre's sake. The pastor leading the flock of God as an under shepherd of God will could have any one of these names. These differences in names are differences in duties and differences in focus. Just like the ministerial gifts, you might have a pastor. My pastor is more of an evangelist in his gifting and his bent than he is, um, one of these others, but he's a pastor and he pastors, but he's also an evangelist at the same time. And you can have more than one of those. He also does some teaching. You're not limited necessarily to one or the other. Different times call for different jobs to be done. And the different ministerial gifts have more to do with jobs than office, than the office being some kind of title conferred on you. It's a lot more about getting the job done than it is about being able to lord it over the flock with a fancy title. So this word bishop deals more with the leading, um, Let's look at it here in Titus. He says a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God. So a bishop then as a steward of God, this is a pastor who specifically and the work of a bishop, he is careful to guard the doctrines of the word of god laboring much in prayer and in the word and if you read these you'll find that to be the case the shepherd role of the pastor is to comfort and protect the flock the shepherd drives out the wolves the fe- the shepherd feeds the lambs the shepherd comforts those that need comfort the shepherd deals with discipline so that's more of the title of the shepherd the elder deals more with the maturity of the man and that deals deals with counseling and directing. All of these deal with the pastoral role. And in some churches that are um, more large, in some places where there's a lot more people, you'll find that you'll have several pastors that exemplify these different areas of ministry. And that's a great gift from God. The Bible says two are better than one and a threefold cord is not easily broken. This, it really works well whenever God's in it, whenever the need is there, whenever a church can have multiple pastors working in multiple different areas of focus that they're more gifted to submitting to one another in love, but it doesn't have to be that way. It can be one pastor. It can be a dozen pastors. If Listen, if you go to seed on what you think is the best church polity, and it's got to be this way, my way or the highway, you just might as well set up your own little cult. You're on your way to it. God's ways are not our ways. And God has given great leniency to the church in how the church organizes its local government. It has a lot more to do with the church loving one another and being of one mind and submitting to one another in love than it has to do with how many deacons you've got or whether or not you've got deacons or whether or not you have enough elders or if you call them bishops or if you call them pastors. The main thing is that you stay within the parameters of the word of God obey God, and follow God. Now, um, here... I was gonna, yeah, verse five, I was gonna look at that. For this cause left I thee in Crete that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. The Bible says the hoary head is the crown of glory if it be found in the way of righteousness. This is not talking about that hoary head. This is talking about an ordained elder, somebody who is ordained to a position, who is recognized to have spiritual maturity, not a novice, and is ordained to a position of leadership pastorally in the church house. He might be younger and he might be older. Charles Spurgeon was 17, I believe, years old whenever he became the pastor there of Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, England. And he served faithfully and ably for many years um, with a flourishing ministry. So the not a novice deals with spiritual maturity more than it deals with age. I've met some old men who were useless to God and I've met some young men who were useless to God. I've met some old men who were on fire for God and I've met some young men who were on fire for God. The elder here is speaking more about maturity. The, in this case, as given by the context to ordain elders, some people would say that means to ordain old men. That is an unbiblical application because the letter to Titus Titus is probably middle-aged by our understanding and the other letter here the pastoral epistles to Timothy are to a youth who's been given authority over the church. So to try and claim that this is only talking about older men has no biblical foundation. Love you in the Lord. There's no Bible to back up that kind of a concept. You have to look at the context and let the Bible define the Bible. Just because the Bible says condemnation in Romans 8 and it says condemnation in John 3 doesn't mean... Doesn't mean it's checking my notes, make sure that that wasn't, I wasn't supposed to be going there. I'm not. This is rabbit trail. In Romans 8, it says condemnation. In John 3, it says condemnation. It's not the same condemnation. You have to look at the context, and that holds true throughout the whole Bible. So here are these that are over you in the Lord, pastors. Teachers, bishops, elders, deacons may be over you if you're one of the ones that they're ministering to placed under their jurisdiction in that small realm, in that little realm of delegated authority. So these are they that are over you and it says, and admonish you in the Lord. Go to 2 Timothy, just a couple, just a page back in my Bible and chapter four and verse one, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing. And his kingdom. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. This is the work of the minister of God. The work of the preacher of God is to admonish you. And the context here is to know them that are over you in the Lord. Now, in that admonition, it's important here to bring in this submission one to another in love. Second um, Timothy two twenty um, four. And the servant of the Lord must not. But be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. If God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. So the servant of the Lord must be gentle, but he's also commanded to reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. It is the job of the preacher to tell you, no, no, bad boy, bad girl. It's the job of the preacher to teach you when you're being bad and to tell you you need to get right with God. It's his job. And it's your job to know that person, that preacher. Go to Hebrews. And we'll tie this to know in with the esteeming in the next verse. Whenever we do that study, Hebrews chapter 13 here in verse 17, obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves for they watch for your souls. Does that mean that if the pastor comes over and he says, I don't like that wall that's blue over there, you need to paint it pink. You have to do it. That's a ludicrous question, but unfortunately it has to be said because we have such a bad understanding of jurisdiction. Within the realm of the church and the work of God, look what it says here, for they watch for your souls. God has given your pastor or your pastors, depending on your church that you go to and the polity that they operate under. God has given your pastors the job to care for your souls and watch for your souls as says, as they that must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. If you think that you can go to church and pick and choose what the preacher says, you are wrong. If you disagree with the preacher about something, then you had best meekly and humbly at least have a conversation with them about it. But let me tell you something. It says for you to know them, not for them to know you. If the preacher doesn't want to listen to your side of the discussion. He doesn't have to, but I've got a right to be heard free speech. That's American, not new Testament. You don't have the right to free speech as a, as a Christian, you have the right to, to speech that God gives you to speech and to shut your mouth when you need to shut your mouth. The word of God here is saying that it is your job to know your preacher. So the next guy says, well, I would know my preacher, but he never has me over. This is not talking about going through your preacher's sock drawer. To know your preacher means sit down, shut up, listen when he preaches, and follow what he teaches. Read your Bible, make sure it's right. If you have anything that you're not quite the same on, and listen, this isn't talking about nitpicking. You don't go, well, I don't see it that way. I don't see it that way about every little thing. But if there's anything that's in the least bit edging towards a major issue, go talk to him and say this is what i this is my opinion and the preacher can say well that's not right i don't see it that way you've got two choices if he'll listen to you you'll have another choice and that is you can tell him your opinion and show him from the bible and you can try and work out an understanding and yes the bible says that he, the preacher should be um long-suffering and meek, instructing those. So ideally, the preacher will listen to you. But if he doesn't, you don't have a right to have him listen to you. So then you have two choices. You can either submit to what he says, work and or come to an agreement of some point, at least to where you and the preacher know that you see things differently. And then you'd have an agreement as to how far that that can go and what you can do within the bounds of that disagreement, and whether or not you can continue fellowship together with that disagreement. Once you've established that, you can either submit or leave. If you leave, you will it will be unprofitable for you. If the situation's bad where the preacher's really bad, wrong on something that really matters, you may have to leave and it may be right to leave and you may have to get out of there. That does happen too. That's not what I'm talking about. When it says it's, it says here to know them which labor among you, it is telling you that it is your job to submit to your pastor. It is your job. That doesn't mean that you have to be a lemming. It doesn't mean that if they say pink is blue, you jump up and down saying pink is blue, pink pink is blue, pink is blue, blue, blue and get your little pom poms out and become one of these stupid lemming cheerleaders that shouts hooray every time their pastor speaks and never even thinks about it until their church goes off into heresy and with their pastor leading them off to drink Kool-Aid somewhere because they'll never speak up whenever he leaves the Bible. Listen, you're not to be a lemming, but you are to know your preacher. I don't know how good a job I've done if if I've done a good job at all. But this text here today puts the burden and the weight on the people of the church to know their preacher's doctrine and understand him. And it is not the preacher's job to have to understand you if he doesn't want to. So if you feel, oh no, the preacher didn't give me 17 hours to discuss all of my doctrinal differences and all the reasons I think he's wrong and try and convince him of my arguments, you're in the wrong And if you've approached your pastor that way, it's gonna be unprofitable for you because they have to give account for your soul. You treat your pastor that way, you're on your way to trouble. It's your job to back him up, to help him out, work it out if you have a little disagreement about something, but overall, we'll look at it next. It says, to be at peace among yourselves, esteem him highly in love for his work's sake. Father, in Jesus' name, please take this feeble effort and use it for your glory. Lord, please um, cut anything that shouldn't be there lord help people to get help from this or not even to listen to it lord i just pray that your will would be done with this message that you would use it for your glory in jesus name amen